This year we have spent the majority of our time studying Paul's letter to the Galatians. False teachers had moved into those churches and they began proclaiming a gospel that we would call, that Paul calls, no gospel at all. It was a false gospel. Uh, they were teaching that Jesus wasn't quite enough. Yeah, you need Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. Or you also need to follow certain dietary restrictions that are laid out in the Mosaic Law. So it was Jesus plus something else. These false teachers taught that it was only by doing these particular things, these works, that a person could be truly justified, that is, made righteous or right with God. So Paul writes with a righteous indignation towards these false teachers, even wishing they would emasculate themselves. Do you remember that line? That one's a hard one to forget when Paul says, I just wish they would emasculate themselves. Incredible. He invites the Galatians to remember that it is only in Jesus Christ, only in Jesus Christ that we are justified. We're only righteous through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's only when we put our faith in those things that we're truly free from the curse of the law. As Paul writes to the Galatians, it's only when we put our faith and trust in Christ that we're free to move forward in this life, free to put off the fruit of the flesh, and free to put on the fruit of the Spirit. Three weeks ago, we left off with Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, 20 and 21, where Paul outlines the fruit of the flesh. And I have in here this question, have you, have you put off the fruit of the flesh over the last three weeks? And as I glanced at that question again this morning, just going over my notes, I had to think, you know, I haven't done a very good job putting off the fruit of the flesh in certain areas of my life over the last three weeks. But today we pick up with the fruit of the Spirit, which he lists in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Would you follow along as I read? You can find it in, in, in the text of Scripture if you're using a pew Bible on 916. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 19. Let's get a running start. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, and orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things <clears throat> will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, but the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, capital S in your text, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its fruit with its passions and desires. Father, we need your help today. Spirit, we need you to teach us. We need you to convict us and reveal to us our inadequacies. 
Teach us today what love is. Show us today where we are failing to love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we begin with the headliner of the list of the fruit of the Spirit, love. You can't open your Bible and read very far without finding the word love or the concept of love listed. In Exodus 34, and I'm going to go through uh, a series of verses here. If you've got a bulletin or if you didn't get one on your way and you can grab one on your way out, uh, they're listed. But Exodus 34 says uh, when Yahweh passes in front of Moses, Moses hears this, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and the gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. In Leviticus, we're instructed to love our neighbor as we love ourself. Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And Moses goes on to instruct Israel to love God ten times in his final sermon of Deuteronomy. Nehemiah 1.5 says this, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. The psalmist sings, Love the Lord, all you his saints. Psalm 118, as Chuck read for us, and Psalm 130-6 declare over and over that it is the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. It endures forever. Solomon, in the Song of Songs, romantically exclaims that for your love is better than wine. Isaiah 54.10, we're given this picture. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love will not depart from you. And my covenant and peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Jesus summarizes the entire law by quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4 and Leviticus 9, 18. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And second, like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then in his conversation with Nicodemus, he spoke those powerful and simple words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's not forget about Paul who wrote in Romans 5, 8, but God shows or demonstrates his love to us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 13 is, is filled with the language of love. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels and I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong. I'm a clanging symbol. And he goes on to say that love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy. We'll look at that a little more next week. But the call to love has not been absent from Galatians, has it? Uh, one of the examples we find in love is the example of Paul towards the Galatians. In chapter 4, verse 19, he says this, My dear children, 
for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ be formed in you. Oh, those are words of such love. I will endure great pain until I see Christ formed in your life. 5.6, he writes this, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith that works itself out through love. Then he follows that up with this, For we're called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. From cover to cover, the Bible emphasizes love. God's steadfast, gracious, covenant love towards us, our love for God, our love for other people. But there is a foundational principle that we have to understand, a, a truth that really undergirds all of these texts that we've considered, what we will continue to consider today, and it's found in 1 John 4, 8. And so I want to invite you to 1 John. We're going to spend all of our time that's left today in John's first letter. So 1 John, towards the back of the New Testament, you'll find 1, 2nd, and 3rd John. 1 John 4, 8 is where we'll begin. I want to focus on the last three words of that verse. Here's this foundational truth. God is love. God is love. Consider that for a moment. It doesn't say God loves. He does. But it's bigger than that. It's, it's deeper than that. It says God is love. Jerry Bridges writes this, love is defined here not as an action and not even as a character trait, but as an essential part of God's very nature. So it's no wonder that the headlining fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is love. Love must come before joy and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Love is the grace from which all of these other graces can flow. Aaron Minikoff words it this way. He says, love kickstarts everything in the Christian life. On this point, Bridges writes again, God's goodness is the preeminent expression of his glory. If we desire to be godlike and to glorify God in our lives, we must make the cultivation and the exercise of love in our hearts an urgent priority. Please hear those words. If we want to make 
strides forward in following Christ and being formed in Christ, love has to be of urgency in our lives. And that's why we're giving it attention today. That's why we'll give it attention next week as well. So this morning as we begin our Fruit of the Spirit study, we're asking two questions. What is love and how do we grow our love? We've already determined that, that God is love, therefore a dominant part of who he is and what makes him who he is. We've also determined that love is to be a dominant part of who we're to be as well. It's not just supposed to be God's nature, it's meant to be our nature. If it is his Holy Spirit that lives in us, then it is only reasonable that what dominates his nature should also dominate our nature. Right? If he is dominated by love, we must be dominated by love. This is why Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. Not by how good you are at fighting with each other. Not by how good you sing together. By the love you have for one another. And I was thinking about that this morning. That's a, that's a passage, if you're reading through the Meadowview plan that we read every week, uh, we read through this recently. And, and this, this is a conversation that Jesus is having with the disciples in the upper room on the night before he dies, this new commandment that he gives to him. And what else is included all throughout that particular sermon? I'm sending a helper. I'm sending a teacher. I'm sending an advocate. I'm sending the Holy Spirit who will enable you to do these things, including this new commandment of what it is to love one another. So what is love? Let's begin with a textbook definition. Agape love is the form of love that, that most reflects personal choice. It refers not simply to pleasant emotions, to good feelings, but to willing self-giving service, I would even add in self-sacrificing service for the good of other people. That's the kind of love we're talking about here. To simplify that definition, one, one, one way we have described it time and time again, including when we worked through 1 Corinthians 13, is love is this, love is you before me. You come before me. So from here, I want to let Jerry Bridges take over in helping us to answer this first question. Here's what he writes. He says, love gives whatever the cost. Love gives whatever the cost. Would you look with me, 1 John, if you're there already? It'll be easy. Chapter 3, verse 16. 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know what love is. Right. Isn't that great? That's the question we're asking. What is love? Well, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life 
for us. The main point of this verse is that love gives even at great cost to itself. Obviously, since it is his nature, Jesus provides for us the ultimate expression of what love is. The son who, who puts on flesh, entering his own creation, that, that incarnation that we will celebrate in the coming weeks as we look forward to the Advent season together. But he lives his life as a servant. He dies as a substitute for sinners, for you and for me. On the cross. All of this because love. He loves you. Love is in his nature. The cost is infinite. And what we mean when we say that is this. We can't comprehend that. We can't comprehend that kind of love, that cost that he paid. But because God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit loved us so deeply, they did not hesitate to pay the cost to redeem you and to redeem me. And this is the love that we are called to show to others. A love that costs whatever it costs us. The last part of 1 John 3.16 says, this same manner we should lay down our lives for our brothers. What exactly is he getting at there? What is John asking us to do? Is he suggesting that if, if the situation ever presents itself where you can substitute your life for somebody else, like taking a bullet for them, then you should do it. And I would say, yes, I think he is suggesting that, but I think his suggestions go much, much deeper and become far more practical to the day-to-day -day life we live. Notice the next two verses, 17 and 18. If anyone has the world's goods, the good stuff, and he sees his brother in need, but he closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is it doesn't. And so he says, little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, we're to meet, we're, we're to love others by meeting the needs of others according to what we find here. Even, even though it may cost us greatly, Consider the Macedonians with me. This is, this is a story that Paul recounts in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 9. The Macedonians were a group of Christians, a group of churches in that particular region, the Macedonian region, and they were in deep poverty. They had nothing. But they heard about Paul raising funds for another group of Christians that were in the Jerusalem region. They had also undergone 
deep poverty, because of persecution, because of famine. And Paul was raising funds from church to church that he could take this offering back and give it to them to help meet the physical needs of those Christians who were there suffering. When the Macedonians heard that uh, Paul was raising this, uh, they said, we want to give. Paul, we want to be a part of this. Paul wasn't even going to ask them because he knew how deep their poverty was, but they wanted to be a part, and they willingly, sacrificially gave. It says this in the text, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Friends, we can love others by giving to meet material needs. Material needs. Many of you recently gave to a particular situation that presented itself in our church. We put it out in email. Wayne had to have his teeth removed, and there was the promise of a grant that he was going to receive that was going to enable him to get uh, false teeth, and that fell through. And so our deacons discussed and worked through that, and it was presented to the church. And, and many of you gave to that. Uh, I think this Tuesday is the final day where he gets to bring those chompers home. That's a huge thing. It may not seem huge to you. It's huge to him. It's a life-changing thing to him to have those kinds of material needs met. This year, as we make our way through the month of November into December, uh, we are once again going to be uh, collecting cans of fruit uh, that will be given to people helping people. Cans just like this. You don't have to give pear halves. You can give whatever kind of fruit you want. But we're going to be collecting these cans of fruit that are going to go to people helping people that are going to go in uh, over 100 baskets that will go to families in need to help them through the holiday season to give them that food. Uh, this is a, a collection of all sorts of churches and organizations in our community that come together. We're just the one who provides the fruit. It's, a, it's an opportunity for us to help meet material needs for people in our community. We were blessed to receive a grant um, several months ago that has enabled us to, to be a spearhead in our community and helping to keep people's lights on as they've lost jobs, as they haven't been able to pay the bills, and uh, we've helped dozens and dozens of families, and I would say the majority of those being single moms. Um, keep their electricity going, keep their water on, helping to meet the material needs of people. I had a good conversation this week with uh, Jamie, the activities director at Republic Nursing and Rehab just up here off of 174 and 60, and we've always had a tremendous relationship with them through the years, and uh, we, we've, our relationship has changed drastically because we haven't been able to go there. We haven't been able to, to do worship services for them on a weekly basis. Uh, but they're still doing their Christmas gifts. And I, I got the envelope uh, that has all the names in it just yesterday out of the mailbox. And so we'll be asking you to sign up to adopt a resident so that we can be a blessing uh, to those folks who oftentimes don't get much and this is just a little wish list they have that gives us the opportunity to help meet some of those material needs. I'll share with you that I was, I was heartbroken to learn that, that since this began, obviously the virus has made its way through many nursing homes, and, and ours is no different in our community. And 
uh, they've lost 30 people. Um, I just, I couldn't believe that. We will have a completely different group of people when we do go back, when we do start those services. And so, uh, but I also think in this light, God gave us as a church an opportunity for years to minister the gospel to them, to those people, some of which who have passed on. We need to continue to do what we can to meet the material needs of others. There's no shortage of opportunity here, is there? Jesus himself said, the poor you'll always have with you. And we have to understand as the church, it's not the government's responsibility to meet these needs. It's our responsibility to see our neighbors and, and, and not be the, the, the Levite or the priest who ignores it and walks to the other side of the road, but to be the Samaritan who, who goes and engages in their life. I thought of these, these, these four L words, and we're going to hear these a lot over the last couple weeks. We've got to learn to look, listen, learn what's going on in people's lives, and finally, love, act. Look, listen, learn, love. But we can also give to others by meeting spiritual needs. It's not just about meeting the physical needs. Bridges writes this. He says, often a person just needs a listening ear, a word of encouragement, a helping hand. But to meet those needs requires us to, to give of ourselves, our time, our attention, our hearts. And the truth is, and many of you know this, that can often be more difficult than giving money, right? It's a lot easier to write a check or to give $20 than it is to give of our time and our attention and truly engage our hearts in the lives of people. To meet the non-material needs of others costs getting out of ourselves, our concerns, and our interests. We cannot take a genuine interest in the welfare of others unless we're willing to become involved in their interests and their concerns. And, and we cannot do this unless we are willing to forgo our own personal interests. Love willingly pays that price, though. I think of Philippians 2, don't prefer your own things, your own interests, but prefer the interests of others. One author wrote it this way. I liked this. He said, love kicks me off the computer, or maybe you could say your cell phone. It sits me down in the car, it buckles my seatbelt, and it sends me off to visit a homebound church member. Love notices that maybe family X hasn't been here in a while, and it sends a card. It makes a phone call. Love takes the time to pray with a, a sister in Christ, you just were having a normal conversation with and found out that there's some difficult circumstances going on in their life at work or in their family, and it takes the time to pray with them. Love's proactive. And I've said this before, and I'll continue to say this because God is going to continue to push us in this area. This church is an incredible church when it comes to reactive love. When there's a need that presents itself and we bring it here and we say, 
hey, here's what's going on. This church reacts with love that, that oftentimes has no measure. But we have to learn to be proactive. We have to learn to be on the front of these things and out in the front like Jesus was, looking, listening, learning, loving. Doesn't that describe so well what we read in the Gospels of his life? They would come to him. He would take the time to listen. He would look for them. Think of this Samaritan woman. He went intentionally for the purpose of meeting her. And he learned, and then he loved. Love gives whatever the cost. One more point that I want us to think through today. This is a two-parter. Second, love sacrifices to forgive. It sacrifices to forgive. We're here in 1 John. Jump over to chapter 4, verse 9 with me, please. 1 John 4, verse 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us. Because God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him here in his love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the, the propitiation, that wrath-bearing sacrifice to pay the price, in other words, for our sins. And beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Read that last line again. If God has so loved us, we ought also, in the same manner, love others. The verse explains the price that Jesus paid because of our sin. He came to, to take our sin, to bear in himself on the cross our sin. Just catalog through today. Catalog through the last week, you can't. It's incomprehensible the ways in which we, we sin, the fruit of the flesh that presents itself in our own lives. While on the cross, Jesus is being punished by the Father. Not for something he did, but for something we did. And he satisfies God's justice there on the cross so that you might be forgiven, so that I might be forgiven. So John once again applies God's love to our relationships with each other, and he says, we ought also to love one another in the same way that he has loved us. So the question is, do we love one another enough to forgive each other? With or without apology for wrongs done. Do we love each other that much? According to the passage, forgiveness costs God his son on the cross. What does it cost us to forgive? What does it cost you to forgive someone? 
Bridges again answers this question better than I could. He said, forgiveness costs us our sense of justice. We all have an innate sense deep within our souls, but it's been perverted by our sinful, selfish side. <laughs> we want to see justice done. We want to see justice accomplished, but the justice we envision satisfies our own interests. We have to realize that justice, please understand this, we have to realize that justice has been done. God is the only rightful administrator of justice in all of creation, and his justice has been satisfied. In order to forgive our brother, our sister, we must be satisfied with God's justice and forgo the satisfaction of our own. So who's hurt you? Who said things to you that that have wounded you? Who's the person or the people who have treated you unjustly? Who's lied to you? They've broken trust because of their actions, their words. What we learn from 1 John 4 is that love willingly absorbs the cost. Love willingly endures the pain by looking to the cross of Jesus where justice has been satisfied. Love willingly absorbs the cost, endures the pain by looking to the cross of Jesus where justice has been satisfied and says this, just as God does, it's enough. Christ's death is enough. That's the choice that love makes. In conjunction with forgiveness, this kind of love enables us to be patient with one another, doesn't it? It enables us to live at peace with one another. It enables us to deal gently with each other, even when we're sinned against. Notice, these are all the other fruit of the Spirit, right? Love enables us to produce these other fruit. It kickstarts all of these other things, beautiful things, in the way we live. If we're going to grow in the grace of love, we have to to be ready to forgive, even at great cost to ourselves. I appreciated this testimony that I found in a book. The author writes, I recall a personal struggle a number of years ago in loving one of my brothers in Christ. He says, one evening the Holy Spirit addressed to my mind the rather startling question, do you believe I love him just as he is. 
I hadn't thought about it that way before. But I did conclude that surely God must love him just as he was, false and all. And then God pressed this question on my mind. If I can love him, can you? God was teaching me to love as he loves, to forgive as he forgives. And love forgives at great cost to itself. It does not demand justice or even changed behavior. It gives. Two ways I want to draw this to a close today. We've still got another uh, definition of love to build that love reaches out. We're going to talk next week about how love how we can cultivate this kind of love, what it takes to grow in this. Today our prayer can be this. One, help me. Oh God, help me to love this way. If, if you think you can conjure up this love on your own, you are very much mistaken. We have to humble ourselves, confess our lack of love, and beg, beg, beg the Spirit of God to cultivate this love of Christ in us for others. A love that, that gives to others no matter the cost. A love that forgives, willing to absorb the pain. Help me love this way. Thank you, God, for loving me this way. I mean, if you only knew what a terrible person I am, the things I think, the reactions I want to have, You would never love me, but he does, despite all of that. And you probably think similarly. And despite your weaknesses, your sinfulness, your wickedness, he loves you. And as Chuck read his Love is steadfast. It's chesed. His love endures forever. And if he set his love on you, he won't remove it. He doesn't change. Oh, we need to give him praise today. This world is so filled with uncertainty. This year is proof of that. But the one certain thing that we see from page to page to page to page in the scriptures is he loves us. And that's not going to change. I'll give him thanks for that today. And then in turn, 
let's strive to love each other in that same way. Would you bow with me? I just want to give you opportunity now to pray, to pray those two prayers. Thank you, God, for loving me. Thank you for giving Christ. And then, God, help me today to make the choices to love others at great cost, to meet their needs, and to absorb the pain and the cost to forgive other people, just as you've forgiven me. Let those be your prayers. I'll be quiet and give you an opportunity to pray. Father, thank you for the great love that you have shown us in Christ. Thank you for the day-to-day -day love that you show us in that you cause the sun to rise on the just and the unjust. You give food. You provide. We are so thankful, God, for the ways in which you've loved us and, and, and that that love is recorded so clearly in the scriptures. And even as we saw today, it's recorded in such a way that it calls us and compels us to emulate it. It is your spirit in us, your spirit who loves these ways. And you long to demonstrate that love in our lives, to demonstrate your forgiveness, your, your generosity, your compassion through us to the world around us, to our families, in the places we work in our neighborhoods. God, you, you long for people to see God is love in the actions of Josh Matthews. God, help me to be willing to let your spirit work. Help me to be willing to put to death the fruit of the flesh that brings dissension and is born of selfishness and greed. And help me to do whatever I can to yield myself to your spirit so that I can love as you've loved. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge it brings to my heart. Help us to not forget these things as we walk out of these doors, but help us to put them into practice. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.